Please pray with, pray with me once more. Our good Father, please do for us in the minutes ahead what I cannot do for us. Feed your sheep by the power of your spirit and to the glory of your Son, I pray. Amen. What is God's will for your life in 2021? I don't know if many of y'all are year-enders and intense about setting up New Year's resolutions and making grand plans for the rest of the new year coming, but what is God's will for your life in 2021? Have you looked forward? Have you thought about that yet? If you don't know what God's will for your life is in 2021, you're in the right place because I know. You know how I know? Because the text we're going to look at this morning lays it out pretty clearly for us. If you want to open up to Galatians 5, 13 to 26. Galatians 5, 13 to 26. This is a decent length of text, so we're not going to be able to dive into every idea and every verse, but we'll hopefully be able to do a good survey from start to finish. God's will for you in 2021 is to live out the freedom that you have in Christ by bearing the fruits of the Holy Spirit. That is the main idea of this text. That's the main import of what Paul is saying to the Galatians, and it's the main idea of my message for us this morning, what I want for us to walk away. Live out the freedom you have in Christ, brothers and sisters, by bearing the fruits of the Spirit. Live out the freedom you have in Christ by bearing the fruits of the Spirit. Let me read Galatians 5, 13 to 26. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not your, use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Here's our first main point this morning. Christians, remember that Christ has freed you. 
Brothers and sisters, remember that Christ has freed you. Look at verse 13 again with me. It says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So our first question to consider under this heading is, what is this freedom that Paul is talking about? Or to ask it another way, what did Christ free us from? This question is extremely important because Paul bases everything he says for the whole rest of the text on the answer to this question. And everything I say for the rest of the sermon is going to be worthless and not bring you any help if this is not true, if the answer to this question does not hold true. So, what did Christ free us from? If we read Galatians from start to finish, you'll find that the answer is this. Christ has freed us from slavery to the Mosaic law. Or to put it another way, Christ has freed us from this enslaving madness of thinking that we can establish our own righteousness before a perfectly holy God by committing ourselves to keep up with the law, by actually walking out in obedience to the law and keeping the commands in and of our own strength. Paul never understood the law to be intended for that purpose, and God never shares in the scriptures that he intended the law to be used for that purpose. He gave the law to us to expose our sinfulness and need for a Savior. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. And we're going to read backwards in Galatians a little bit in this sermon. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Okay, so that, that text tells us that it is explicitly Christ himself who sets us free. So, I don't set myself free. You don't set yourself free. The law doesn't set you free. No other worldview sets you free. Christ himself sets you free, brother and sister. But free from what? We still haven't answered that question. Free from what? Well, he frees us from what Paul calls the yoke of slavery. In chapter 4, Paul explicitly states, he clearly identifies that this law is the Mosaic law given at Sinai. He says that we were under the law. That phrase is used several times through chapter 4 and in chapter 5 as well. It says we're under the law, and that law is specifically the Mosaic law. And the big point in chapter 4 is that, that, that Paul's trying to make in chapter 4 is that God only ever intended to bring about salvation through his promised son and not through the law. The law was only ever meant to be our guardian, he says, until his promised son came to redeem us. So we need to get our understanding of the law right. To miss that and to live as if we can establish our own righteousness before a perfectly holy God by our keeping of his commands is utter madness and futility, and you will wear yourself out. Christ has freed you from that futility, brothers and sisters. You don't have to work your fingers down to the bone to earn your righteousness, to earn your acceptance in God's sight. Christ has kept the law perfectly for you and redeemed you from the guilt of every infraction of the law that you have ever committed. How wonderful a thought is, a thought is that. Every infraction of God's perfect holiness that you've ever committed, which makes you guilty of the whole law. Paul said breaking the law in one part makes us guilty of the whole, whole law elsewhere. Christ has redeemed us from that. 
And he did much more than forgive you. He's made it so that we could be adopted as sons of the Father. So he's forgiven us and he's adopted us. Galatians 4, 5 to 7 says that God sent Christ to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, brothers and sisters, what is this freedom that we have in Christ? Christian, freedom is remembering that God has liberated you from being enslaved to the idea that you can establish your own righteousness before him. And freedom is also knowing that you've been adopted into the family of God through his spirit and the work of his son. Your salvation is all about God's grace from start to finish. Every day of the week, it's all about God's grace. There's never a point in time where we're supposed to pivot to suddenly start to keep the law to earn God's favor. It's not like we just enter the kingdom It's not like we're just saved initially through God's grace and then after that we pivot to start to keep his favor based off of how we live. No, no, we live by his grace just the same way we were saved by his grace initially. Our sanctification is entirely from start to finish a work of God's grace. Remind that of yourself. Remind yourself of that every day. Now let's go back to verse 13. If you'll look back at verse 13 and we'll consider a second question on our first heading. So first we ask, what is this freedom that Paul's talking about? Now I want to ask, what are the possible responses to the truth of this freedom that we have in Christ? And in verse 13, Paul identifies at least two responses, a right response and a wrong response to this freedom. So so looking at the wrong response first, he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This is the same issue that Paul had to deal with in Romans 6.1 when he said, Shall we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. You get the logic of this response, though, right? If we're free in Christ, if we don't establish our own righteousness before God, if we're justified by faith in Christ and his perfect law-keeping, his perfect fulfillment of God's law, and not our law-keeping, if that's true, then what does that mean for our lifestyle? It's so easy for us to to misconstrue that. You can imagine a person who hears what Paul is saying and says, that's great news. Like, I, I am saved. I'm made right with God, not by establishing my own righteousness before him, but by believing in his perfect son who he sent to redeem me from my sin, to do for me what I could not do for myself. That's great news. My salvation doesn't depend on my righteousness, establishing my own righteousness by means of obeying his commands. Therefore, and this is the bad pivot that we're so tempted to make and that so many people do make. He said, therefore, I don't need to worry so much about restraining my sinful impulses and obeying his commands because they're not the grounds of my salvation anyway. Right? Like, it's it's logical. That makes sense. It's not like what Paul is saying here is crazy or outlandish. It's dangerously wrongheaded and it will be destructive to your souls if you think that way. 
But it's not a crazy or outlandish thought. Paul had to deal with this all the time because people kept misunderstanding grace in those terms. They're thinking, because I was saved by grace, well, I don't have to kill my sin. Or I don't have to positively put on righteousness. Paul does not mince words about that misconstruing of God's grace, that butchering of God's grace, and so we should not mince words about it either. The Bible's position on this is very clear, brothers and sisters. The fact that we are saved by grace does not mean that God doesn't care about how we live. Freedom in Christ does not mean unfettered, uninhibited license for our flesh to run rampant. So that's what the freedom cannot mean. What then is the right response to the freedom in Christ? Well, freedom manifests by loving and serving one another, as Paul says. But through love, serve one another. And then in verse 14, he grounds it by saying, For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the prevailing ethic of the Bible from start to finish. And Paul's teaching here is in full alignment with the teaching of Christ himself who summed up the law in the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Whatever else is true of us as followers of Christ, brothers and sisters, this must be true of us. We must love one another. We're deceiving ourselves to claim to be followers of Christ and then not love one another. If you haven't already maxed out your New Year's resolutions, let me suggest this is something you can add to your list. Brainstorm two or three ways in the upcoming year that you can practically love and serve your brothers and sisters in the context of this church here at Emmanuel. And then each quarter throughout the year, do an assessment and see how you're doing, whether you're keeping up with that or not. Well, let's move on to look at verses 16 to 26. And our second main point, Christian, live fruitfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. Christian, live fruitfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. Your freedom from slavery to the law is meant to produce a fruitful life to the glory of God. In these verses, Paul is practically applying the truth of our freedom in Christ to how we live. This is what he does in almost every one of his letters. He's getting pretty predictable with this. And if there's something that we see cropping up in his teaching again and again, we would do well to pay close attention to it. In these verses, Paul is practically applying the truth of our freedom in Christ, so doctrinal truth. We are free in Christ. We don't establish our own righteousness before a holy and perfect God. We can't do it, even if we wanted to. That's the truth. That's the doctrine. Now Paul's teasing out what that means for our lives. In Ephesians 2.10 he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in Titus 2.14, Paul says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Who are zealous for good works. This is always where Paul goes with the doctrine. The life-giving truths that he teaches us about the person and the work of Christ always terminates, always results in changed lives. God cares about how you live, brothers and sisters. True faith is always coupled with works. If you read the Bible, you will see that true faith is always, every time, 
coupled with works. If you have profession of faith and no works in keeping with that faith, then you don't have true faith. I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm talking about true faith and true commitment to be obedient to the Lord and his commands. Look at verse 16. Paul's overarching command in this section is found in verse 16, where he says, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. If somebody were to ask you what that means, walk by the Spirit, what would you say? How would you explain it to them? We're supposed to walk by the Spirit. Let me ask that same question in a slightly different way and try to answer it. Answer it. This will be our first subpoint under the second main heading. What is the relationship between the believer and the Holy Spirit in the fulfillment of this command? Walk. Walk by the Spirit. What is the relationship between the believer and the Spirit in the fulfillment of this command? So we're going to look at verses 16, 18, 22, and 25 to answer this. So first observation, we can't ignore that in verse 16, we have a clear command, walk. Imperative, you walk. Walk by the Spirit. This involves personal activity. It is not God's will. It is never God's will for us to sit on the sideline in the Christian life and to sit on the sideline of our sanctification, our conformity to the image of Christ. Second observation about the relationship between the believer and the Spirit is from verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. This means that the Spirit is the instrumental means by which we bear fruit. You can't bear fruit any other way. You cannot please God. I cannot please God any other way than the the Spirit powerfully working in us. He's the instrumental means by which we bear fruit. No fruit will be produced in your life except by the Spirit of God working in you as you walk after Christ. Third observation about the relationship between the believer and the Spirit. In verse 18, Paul says, we are led by the Spirit. How? What does that mean? How are we led by the Spirit? This does not mean anything like the obnoxiously popular Christian slogans where people say, I'm just waiting on the Spirit's leading. I'm just hanging out. Like whenever the Spirit wants to lead me, I'll, I'll do this. That is not at all what Paul is saying here or the Bible is teaching. As a general rule, that kind of talk, one, is just incredibly obnoxious to me personally. That kind of talk tends to just be a lame excuse for passivity and not getting up off the couch to obey what Christ has already clearly revealed to us in his scriptures. So being led by the Spirit is not to be understood primarily as the Spirit directly intervening in individuals' lives to give specific instructions on specific occasions of our lives. That's not what being led by the Spirit here means. What does it mean then? The present tense of the verb gets at the ongoing nature of what the Spirit is doing. So the Spirit's leading is not some future mysterious or mystical or sensational event that we're just waiting on happening at some point. It is his present ongoing activity in which he exerts influence over and direction in the believer's life. Let me say that again. This this leading or this being led by the Spirit, is his present and ongoing activity in which he exerts influence over and direction in the believer's life. 
Have you ever seen those, um, those team cycling races? You know, like Tour de France, but team version where you have like four bikers in a row and there's that person out front who's just kind of breaking through the wind and everyone, the other three people are, you know, behind him drafting along. And some people would think this being led by the Spirit is kind of like that. We're just drafting along behind the Spirit. That, that's not the best way to understand. I don't think that's how we should understand this idea of being led by the Spirit. We're not just drafting along behind him, pedaling furiously, pumping our legs, trying to produce fruit to God's glory as if it depends on our pumping our legs. This being led by the Spirit is really more like a train, if you think about it. You got the engine at the front of the train, and then all the other cars are latched onto it, they're hooked to it, and then that, that engine is what leads every other train down the track and gets it to its destination. I think that's a better image for how we can understand this language of being led by the Spirit. Uh, by God's grace, when he saved you, brother and sister, he hooked your wagon, he hooked your car to the engine of the Holy Spirit who will lead you down the tracks of sanctification until you arrive at the final destination of God's eternal kingdom. That's how your sanctification works. I also look at a fourth observation in answering this question, what is the relationship between the believer and the Spirit? Verse 22 uses the expression, fruit of the Spirit. We've seen already that the Spirit is the instrumental means by which we even have the power to walk in the first place. But the Spirit is more than the means by which we walk. He also provides direction to us or, or objectives, specifically the fruit. He teaches us where to go, what to do. So he's the power by which we do it, and he provides the direction or the objectives that we're supposed to achieve. Now let's look at a fifth and a final observation from the text in answer to this question. Verse 25 says, If we live by the Spirit... Let us also walk by the Spirit. Here Paul makes the most commonsensical and maybe the most significant observation in this whole section of text. He connects our walking to our being made alive by the Spirit. How can you walk if you're not alive? You're dead. You're lying there, breathless, lifeless. You can't walk. Again, how are we brought into the kingdom? Through the atoning work of Christ in our place on the cross, through his perfect life, his perfect righteousness for us. Substitutionary atonement. We're made alive by that. Through faith, the Spirit regenerates us when we believe in Christ and follow him. And then he continue by, continues by the same power to help us to walk, to help us to follow the path of sanctification until we reach that final day where either we go to be with the Lord or the Lord comes home and we get to experience his rule and reign in the present. Why in the world would we ever assume that we can take two steps towards bearing God-pleasing fruit on our own when we couldn't even draw two spiritually alive breaths on our own? how quickly we start to act as if the rest of our salvation, including our sanctification, depends on us. In this verse, Paul is basically restating what he said in Galatians 3.3. 3, Are you so foolish? 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The glorious and liberating truth is that God accomplishes our salvation from start to finish. By his Spirit, he regenerates us and calls us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And by his Spirit, he sanctifies us and causes us to bear fruit for his glory. This is the relationship of the believer and the Spirit spirit in the process of fruit-bearing. So that's the first main subpoint under our first heaven. Now let's move on now to our second subpoint, um, found in verse 17, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. The battle between the flesh and the spirit. First off, what does Paul mean when he says the flesh? What is the flesh? The flesh is our sinful nature set in opposition to Christ. Good definition of the flesh is our sinful nature set in opposition to to Christ. It is our old self or old man that Paul speaks of in Romans 6 6 when he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For a fuller discussion of the warfare between the flesh and the spirit, I would just encourage you to read Romans 8 1 to 13. It's even more robust than our text in Galatians right now. But the basic truth of verse 17 is getting at this. Our life, this side of heaven, in the already but not yet experience of salvation, is fraught, full of conflict. Intense spiritual conflict because there are two powers at work within us. That's just a fundamental reality of being a Christian. We have our remaining flesh. We have the old man that we're trying to put off but we've been made new in Christ. God has chosen not to completely eradicate the sinful impulses of our flesh from our lives this side of heaven. In this life, our flesh is like an evil king who has been deposed and then on his way out of the castle, he's just raising Cain and setting fire to everything that he can, doing as much damage as he can on the way out, but he is dethroned. He is out On his way out, he's setting fire to as much as he can. That's what our flesh is doing. But the Spirit is at work in the lives of the believers, putting out those fires and redecorating the castle for the final coming of the new Savior King who will one day make all things new. Paul highlights also here an experiential result of this conflict. We often find ourselves tempted to do things that we don't want to do. And Paul found himself in the same conflict in Romans 7. I just encourage you to read that text to better understand the inner struggle of the Christian life. So let's move on to verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me and our next subpoint. Those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. Those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. So what does it mean that we are not under the law? So what does that phrase, under the law, mean? The idea here has a couple of flavors of meaning to it. First, it communicates the transition from one era to another, uh, specifically from the old covenant era to the new covenant era. In Galatians 4.4, Jesus was said to be born under the law. So whatever our understanding of this phrase, under the law, is, we have to have a category for which Jesus could be born under the law. Jesus was born under the era when the Mosaic covenant still defined the relationship between God and his chosen people, the Israelites. 
Jesus, however, came to usher in a new era. He came to usher in the new covenant. So when Paul says we are not under the law, he means that we are no longer in the era where the law is the primary way by which we relate to God. That's not how we relate to the Lord. Under the new covenant, we know and relate to God through his Son and his Spirit who indwells us. So that's the first flavor of meaning for under the law. The second flavor of meaning for under the law is, is that of a transition from one sphere of influence or power to another sphere of influence or power. The dominating influence in the believer's life is no longer the law. We, are no long, we no longer live and die by our adherence to the law. It is now the Spirit of God exerting influence over us and directing us so that we would bear fruit to the glory of God. Look at verses 19 to 21 with me now, and we'll consider our next subpoint: the works of the flesh, the works of the flesh. So our sin nature produces the work, works of the flesh that Paul lists here. Uh, this list is not an exhaustive list. It's likely tailored to the Galatian church. Paul's likely specifically addressing some issues he knows are going on in the dynamics of the churches in Galatia. So let me ask, how would Paul tailor a list for Emmanuel Church? If you think Paul was writing a list of works of the flesh, our sin nature rearing its head, and trying to get us to do things that we know are not glorifying to God and that we ought not to do, what would that list look, for like, look like for us corporately? And then also, what would that list look like for you individually? What works of the flesh do you think Paul would call out in your life? Would he say, Emmanuel Church, the works of the flesh are, verse 19, laziness. Verse 19 for his letter to us, not the, not the actual Galatians. Emmanuel Church, the works of the flesh are laziness. Selfishness in your marriages. Greed for material wealth, lust for selfish sexual pleasure, infatuation with the good opinions of others, pride at God's gifts to you, rejoicing more in uh, the, the creature or the thing than the creator or the giver of the thing, gossip about other brothers and sisters in the church or, or stinginess and apathy towards those who are in need. I'm, I'm not sure what Paul would write to us, but I think it's helpful for us to, to think in those categories. What, what sins of the flesh are we most prone to corporately? What, what is our culture most prone to? What, is we with, what are we within our culture most prone to? And then assess yourself individually. What, what are you personally most prone to? These things should not characterize us as those who seek to walk by the Spirit. For verse 21 says that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, the Greek word translated do in the SVN there generally carries, carries the idea of making a practice of. It highlights a, a habitual way of life. Paul calls a spade a spade. He says if your life is habitually characterized by these sins, then you're clearly not a Christian and will not inherit life forever with Christ in his eternal kingdom when he returns. 
Now let's look at verses 22 to 24 and the fruit of the Spirit. I'm just going to make some observations about these verses. Um, First, that there's no grand significance to the order of the fruit of the Spirit. A lot of people try to find some some significance to the order of the, the fruit. I don't think there's any significance to it, except that love is placed first. Which just makes complete sense because Paul has just emphasized love is the fulfilling of the law back in verse 14. And then in verse 6, he had said, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So, so whatever else is true of us, brothers and sisters, we must exemplify this love. Paul keeps hitting it again and again. So I'm going to say it again. Whatever is true of us, whatever characterizes us, whatever aroma we give off in life to those around us, it must be that of love that looks like Christ. Second observation about this list of the fruits of the Spirit It's not an exhaustive list. Paul doesn't list every fruit that he could loose. Paul is addressing, again, a specific group of people dealing with some specific issues, and it kind of comes out in the list when you read through it. The conflict in the Galatian church is probably why this list largely militates against conflict and promotes promotes peace in our relationships with one another. Let me address a third and a common, uh, I believe, and an inappropriate response that people have when they read this list of the fruits of the Spirit. These fruits of the Spirit should not be taken in isolation from one another. We can't say that I'm just not naturally a gentle person, so I don't have to work on that one. I'm better at the generosity or the love or the patience or something. I just don't have to work on that gentle thing because that's not the way I'm wired. It's a dangerous and wrong-headed way of looking at these things. The fruits of the Spirit are parts of a whole, and they are to be viewed in light of the whole. Like the Beatitudes in Christ's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, these fruits of the Spirit provide a summary description of how true disciples of Christ should act. We should be growing in every single one of these fruits, y'all. These fruits better reflect the beautiful nature of Christ and bring greater glory to God when they're performed all in concert together. They better reflect the beauty of Christ and they bring greater glory to God when all of these fruits are working in concert together in our lives. Let me again suggest a New Year's resolution. If you're not good at making New Year's resolutions, you're welcome for these, by the way. I can hand out resolutions all day long. I know somebody who every year chooses one fruit of the Spirit to focus on growing in. It's one of the best resolutions I've ever heard anyone make. I'm just going to choose patience this year. I'm going to really work on patience. That's their thing for the year. Let me just encourage you. What a great New Year's resolution. How how wonderful would it be if every single one of us in 2021 chose one of the fruits of the Spirit and said, I'm going to work on that. It's not a long list. Do that year after year for a few years. I think it would be an incredible impact on your life and the lives of those around you. Let me close by drawing your attention to verse 24. Verse 24 says this. And those who belong to Christ Jesus 
have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul has been addressing ethical issues all throughout this text. Our way of living and relating to other people. Paul rarely lasts for long in giving practical application before he feels this insatiable desire. He can't help himself but go back to doctrine and remind us of the foundational truths and motivations for why we're supposed to live the way we're supposed to live. And so here in verse 24, he takes us back to doctrine. He takes us back to the foundation for why and how we can live and bear the fruits of the Spirit. Here in verse 24, he is reminding us that as believers, we have been united to Christ in his crucifixion, and thus our flesh was decisively defeated at the cross. Whatever battles we have here in this life with the flesh are really like stamping out the fires in that castle as the flesh has been dethroned and tries to wreak havoc on his way out. Whatever struggles, whatever sins and temptations that we fight against now are just like that. It's like stamping out those fires that the flesh is leaving behind. So brothers and sisters, what is God's will for your life in 2021? Whatever it may be, we know that his will for your life is to live out the freedom you have in Christ by bearing the fruits of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. You know how I know that's his will for your life in 2021? It's his will for our lives every single day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for setting us free from the law, for setting us free from our sin. Lord, we were slaves and we were captive, we were blind, and it is only by your grace that you have set us free and you've given us life. We could not add one ounce to establishing our own righteousness before you, Father. And yet, because of Christ and his perfect righteousness, you've given us freedom. You've liberated us to be able to do that which brings you the most glory and will bring us the most joy, living according to your will and bearing fruits of the Spirit. Lord, help us to be more fruitful this year. May we go out in the confidence that it is your will that we would bear more fruit, that we would be more sanctified by the end of 2021 than we are right now. We trust in your spirit to continue his ongoing work of working in us this coming year. We love you, Lord. We bless you for your spirit. And we praise you in your son's name. Amen.